0: These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn against burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and in this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken on bringing of his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people As they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that that had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. But Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not your anger burn, uh, my Lord, burn hot. You know that the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, Threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side of each each of you, and go to and from the gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. May the word of the Lord be so. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray for blessing over this, this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, we confess you as the true and living God this morning. You are a God of, of all glory, Lord. You are the Holy One that we worship today. Lord, we thank you for your word, your word that is challenging, your word that is convicting lord we just ask that through your word we would be changed and conformed to the image of christ this morning jesus may we behold your glory your grace may we truly understand how great a savior you really are for each one of us holy spirit give us eyes to see this passage afresh give us ears to hear give us a heart to long for you, Lord, and wait for you in your coming. Jesus, would you be glorified in this? It's your name that I pray. Amen. I'm a, I am a football fan, right, as many Kansas Cityans are, at least right now at this time. And in football, there's two, two different color flags you may see out there on the field. If you've watched it, you've seen the officials, they throw their yellow flags they throw their yellow flags when there's a penalty, and then the coaches have their red flags as a sort of challenge on the last play, right? A challenge. These red flags, they, they are thrown on the field so that they may watch the previous play, replay it again, and see what, what actually happened. Because we know that as humans, we are prone to make mistakes, and we're prone to, to make the wrong calls at times. But not only am I a fan of football, but I've become a fan of these commercials that really play on these flags that you started seeing around football season. Maybe you've seen this, right? The, the challenge flag that comes out, but it comes out during real-life situations, situations that I maybe face, situations that you have probably faced before, right? Things like, did you grab the baby's bag on your way out? Did you grab the, the paddles for the, the kayaks? No, I thought you said you would get them. Do we need to pull the challenge flag out? You've maybe seen these commercials, have you not? If you haven't seen these commercials, you've lived these experiences before. How many of us wish that this is how it worked in real life, that you could challenge the call, right? Go back and look at it again. Many of us, we we wish we could do that because we would feel vindicated or, or justified because obviously we are the ones that made the right call, that remember the past in the right way. But more often than not, at least it is for me, because I'm the one with the bad memory in our marriage. More often than not, I'm the one that's wrong. More often than not, I don't remember the past exactly how it happened. Here in this passage with the Israelites, we see a people who have forgotten their past. They've forgotten their past, and not only have they forgotten it, but they don't remember Remember it the way that it's actually been so. And sadly, as not just a pastor, but as one who's grown up in the church and, and been part of the Lord's work in, in a healthy church for a long time, sadly, I've seen one too many students, I've seen one too many parents, one too many adults who forget what their past was really like, and then they go back. They were here, they were among us, they were excited, and then one day, you kind of look up, and you just kind of throw your hands up, and you're like, where did, where did they go? Where are they now? As Pastor Jesse at our church likes to say, these are the people that just kind of poof, right? Gone without a trace. Some go back, but not you, church. Church not you, by the work of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thanks to the word of the Lord, may you be a people who do not go back. There's a lot that's going on in this passage of Exodus 32, and, and uh, going through Exodus right now at our church on Wednesday nights with the students, so that you kind of understand what leads up into this passage, and there's a lot going on. Maybe it's a little confusing to you, but what's the real travesty of this passage? What's the real travesty? Well, in context, in Exodus, you know that, that Moses has been given a, a word from the Lord, and I just say word, but the very law of God presented to him. The law of God that is said in this passage that has been etched in stone here. God himself has etched his law in this stone. God himself has spoken his law to his people And so the the great irony, not in a funny way, just how it is, the irony is that while Moses is getting the law of God, we're getting an insight here to Exodus 32 on what the people are doing while he is speaking face-to-face with the Lord. While he's getting the law, they're breaking that law. Their big mistake. Moses has been up on the mountain. It says he's up there for for 40 days while he receives this law. And I don't know if it was day two. I don't know if it's day 38. But at some point in those days, the people begin to grow impatient. But what's also a travesty about this is not only is Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God himself, but Moses is also receiving instruction on, on the tabernacle the very Lord's tent, the way that the Lord intends to dwell with his people in their midst, that they may know that he is Lord of all and he is a God who is with them. A God who is present with his people. These were supposed to be a people here that would enjoy the presence of God. And instead, in the irony of of sin, and of humanity, while Moses receives the instruction of this great tent and the way that the Lord would dwell among them, instead the people experience a distancing of God himself. As I read this, and as you read this, you, you get this sense, do you not, that the Lord, who is supposed to be present with his people, is now being distanced from them because of their idolatry, because of their sin. And yet in verse 8 we see that this isn't the Lord's desire, but that as he says in this passage, they have turned aside quickly out of the way from which I have commanded them. Why does the Lord feel distant to his very people that he has redeemed and brought forth from Egypt out of slavery? Well, it's because instead of running to him, now they are running back. Moses makes it clear here in this passage that the people have not fully given up on their old way of life, but now they have stepped away from God and stepped back into the past. Now they look more like the Egyptians from which they came from, not Israel, the Son of God, not the people that the Lord has called them to be. You and I, we are a people, a people who may be prone to step back, but by the word of the Lord and by the grace of God, I pray that you may continue to be his prized possession, his prized possession. That is what the Lord calls his people earlier on in Exodus, and that's what he calls his church today. A people for his glory, but a people that he himself, the Lord of glory, treasures, So the purpose of this passage and the purpose for preaching this, this morning is clear. Church, don't go back. Don't go back. But push onward. Push onward as the buttress of truth that God has made you to be here in this community. Push onward as a people of faith. Push onward as a people who cherish the very presence of God Almighty. you must be reminded this morning that there is nothing good to go back to. But our greatest good is the one that has called us out of that past life, out of the life of slavery, and called us into his marvelous light. Paul reflects on this. He gives the same purpose in in 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to read that real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As Paul reflects on on the Old Testament scriptures and he reflects on Israel's life. He says this in verse five Nevertheless with most of them God was not pleased, for they were not overth- sorry, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Church, don't go back. Don't go back to what that, that which is only evil, but pursue that which is good. In all your ways. But the travesty here is these people are not just a forgetful people in the Old Testament. No, these are a blind people, the scriptures say. We are blind before we come to Christ. Blind to Yahweh. Blind to his holiness. Blind to his very greatness. And that's really where the irony is, is it not in this passage? That a people who are so blind, who who desire something they can touch, and they can feel, and they build for themselves an idol, yet all the while, all that they need is the Lord of glory himself, who is there with them. A God that you may not see, but a God who is very present in the day of trouble. May the Lord open up our eyes to see that which is true, This morning. So church, we're going to look together from this passage. Mostly from the first ten verses here. But there's five ways in which these people are blind. Blind in this passage. Five ways in which the Lord in turn opens our eyes to see and behold his glory. May we not be blind or forgetful this morning. And number one. These are people that could not see God's timing. They could not see God's timing. Look at it again with me. Verse one, Moses speaks plainly here. Sin is always so plain. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. What did they see? They, They saw Abraham had Sorry, Moses had not returned yet, but he had delayed to come to them. They could not understand the timing of the Lord. In the Old Testament, we see other examples of this. Maybe most famously, you might think of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, do you not? Abraham and Sarah, who had been promised a, a son of promise. Abraham had been told that through him, the Lord would make a great people through him he would make great nations from. And in order to do that, you need children. You, You need that legacy, that fruit, that which the Lord can provide. So Abraham and Sarah, they wait and they wait. And then they take matters into their own hands. Sarah gives Hagar over to Abraham. And I cannot imagine all the sort of marital problems that can cause... But the problems that causes before the Lord Almighty Himself. Why? Because God said, I have a son promised for you, and this is not the way. This is not the way. They had an issue with the Lord's timing, just like just like the Israelites have here in this passage. I have an issue with the Lord's timing whenever I try to take things into my own hands I have an issue with the lord's timing when I do not consult the lord before moving forward in the ways of the lord We are called to be the lord's hands and feet but we cannot work for the lord without the lord himself working in us Church don't take matters into your own hands but rather be the hands who are directed by the head himself the head who is Jesus Christ this morning Aaron, who often becomes the negative example here in this passage for us, a man who is called to leadership and it fails in many ways. He seems to respond out of fear here. Fear. I'm not exactly sure what that fear, what the root of that fear is. It could be that he was afraid that they would harm him. They seem pretty direct here in this passage. Right up, make us gods. Maybe he was afraid that they would Reject him, whatever it is, Aaron himself was driven back to Egypt out of fear instead of standing firm in the faith. But praise God for a wonderful Savior who has revealed himself to us this morning, that you, church, would not be a people of fear, but a people of faith. Faith. And that faith is the most glorious seen in this world when we are a church who wait on the Lord. The Lord does not delay; His timing is always perfect. Church, wait on the Lord this morning. That decision to follow the Lord and and to wait on Him, Scripture says, it, it starts today and it's renewed every day. It is through faith and not by sight that we have conviction to stand firm for Christ when we need it most there will not be a time in your life where you're called to resort to anything other than faith in Jesus Christ faith is necessary in all times in all circumstances you see for in scripture it's not a question of where God works But how is God working? Through study of scripture, God shows himself to us that we may grow aware of his work in us and around us at all times. That we may behold his glory in the very mundane things of life. That you may behold his glory in the very trials of life themselves. Wait on the Lord. And that a uh, passage we read out of 2nd Samuel earlier in chapter 22 David himself he, he praises the Lord as he he calls him a refuge of strength there in those first couple of verses he praises the Lord that he is a Lord a God that he can wait on and account for his works in his life i just want to encourage you this morning that through the trials maybe maybe it's some of you have faced cancer maybe some of you have faced death death of a loved one death of your your own fruit from the lord death of children maybe you face the the unknowns of whether it's a job that you'll have tomorrow or not whatever it is the lord says to wait on him in faith you see in the military a soldier is called to to hold the wall, to, to stand firm, to, to be on watch throughout the night. And if you're caught sleeping as a soldier, there's dire consequences that come with that. Waiting is, is not standing idly by, but waiting is, is watching, being alert, the Lord says, in this world. Standing firm against sin, standing firm against fear. May we be a people who see the Lord at, at work in all things in this life. They could not see the Lord's timing. But this is also a people who could not see their false worship. They could not see their false worship. Here in this passage, you, we see things like making altars and, and the, holding a feast for the Lord These things maybe sound right to the people, but they're done in all the wrong ways. Here it is clear there is a wrong picture of worship happening in the camp of Israel. While they don't outright reject Yahweh, and they bring up his name here in this passage in verse 5, they are worshiping a false idol. They are worshiping a young bull here. A God that they are adding on top of Yahweh himself. And I think verse 4 is key into understanding what's going on. Because there's some some misdirect and misunderstanding to who Yahweh is and how he works in their life. Verse 4, this is Aaron, he received the gold from their hand, the gold that he, he had asked for, which... In Exodus, the gold that is meant to be used for the tabernacle later on, for true worship later on, they, they squander. They turn it over to this idol worship. And he fashions a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, are you kidding me, church? Right? We, we read that and we're like, no, it is Yahweh by his hand that has brought them out of Egypt. But there, I think there's a little more going on here when they say that these are your gods. Another title for, for the Lord in the Old Testament, not only is Yahweh, but it's Elohim as well. Elohim, which could be a plural form for gods, or it could be a title for God Almighty himself, the one true living God. By no means am I a Hebrew scholar, but I think it's important here because what's going on is they're using the same title that can be used of the Lord to refer to this young bull here, that these are your gods. And it's clear in the Old Testament when we're talking about Elohim, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, or when we're talking about false gods because of the context of the words around it, okay? But why is this important? Because there is misdirect and who they are calling their God. Misdirect in their worship. That while they might be a people who say, no, we, we believe in Yahweh, we trust in Him, we just also believe in these other gods as well. This is a form of syncretism, I think, that's going on here with idol worship. A blending of what, you, what they would call the faith here. But really what it is is a gross parody of what God has asked them to do. He says, build my tabernacle. Use the gold they've taken from Egypt for that tabernacle. Instead, they build this idol with it, and they call it God himself. They're supposed to give offerings to the true God, the living God, not to make gods for themselves. Church, This sort of syncretism goes on around us all the time as well. And you must be aware of this false worship. Church, we cannot be gullible of this sort of worship. We cannot fall prey to it. But we must worship the triune God himself, the Lord of glory. We must worship Jesus Christ, the one who truly saves and satisfies us. And any, any blending of falsehood, any, any blending of lies with the truth is in fact no truth at all, but it is all lie. We commit our ways to God's truth, to the revealed word, both incarnate in Jesus Christ and inscripturated in these Bibles before you now. You see, in, in Lawson, Missouri, it looks a lot different than Kansas City. Okay, we'll be the first ones to admit that. Small town, different jobs there, lots of hardworking families. I love be, to be a part of it. But what we find in Lawson, Missouri, is, is a, lot of, a lot of people who profess to be what they would call Christians or churchgoers. Yet many of these are the same people that when the Mormon missionaries come around knocking on their doors, fall prey to the lies that are given to them. Things like, well, we worship the same Father. Or things like, well, we believe in Jesus Christ as well. But church, we must know the truth. Stand firm on the truth that is revealed in God's scriptures and his word alone. His testimony has been given to us. Praise God for his word. The church has been sure of this truth ever since her conception that God is triune, that we worship Jesus Christ, our creator and our savior, that Christ is Lord of lords, king of kings, to the one whom all creation belongs. Church, you belong to Jesus Christ. Do not fall prey to this sort of false worship that is Jesus and, but Jesus alone we worship. They could not see their false worship, and they could not see their self-indulgence as well. They could not see their self-indulgence. Verse 6, after giving this sort of feast to what they said is to the Lord, what happens? They rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Lots of young kids around here. Praise God for that. All right, Amen to a, a church that continues to have kids. Have you ever seen a little kid, or maybe you were this kid, that walk into a new place and they would just get overstimulated, super excited, start bouncing off the walls, right? I don't know if Chuck E. Cheese is still a thing, but that was a thing then. Right? You get in there and you just don't even know, like, you don't know what to do because there's so much to do. And usually what happens, parents who might have tested this, the kids end up maybe getting a scolding right off the get-go, right? Why? Because they don't know how to behave themselves with all the found freedom that they have. Here God is getting our attention this morning that we may, may not be children in this way. But rather that he would direct our passions and our desires, and he would direct them in a way that glorifies him and does not serve ourselves. They could not see their self indulgence here. Spiritually, they're they're trapped in a sort of spiritual stupor here where they, they're just they're in a in a coma, they, they can't respond to the Lord's work, and yet their flesh seems to be in a frenzy. They're eating, they're drinking, they rose up to play. Yes, that is a euphemism for sexual immorality here. Some may disagree with that. Either way, these are people who seek to satisfy their flesh. How do we know that their, their worship is not really spirit-led because it's a self-serving worship in the end? It serves their flesh false worship always puts an emphasis on the flesh and not on beholding the glory of Christ. They hold a feast before this idol. They make sacrifices to it, sacrifices that belong to Yahweh and Yahweh alone, and then they go off and they indulge themselves. They act like they're giving to God, but instead, Scripture makes it clear they are exchanging the glory of God for their own desires. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter one, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What a travesty that is, church to exchange the very glory of God for anything lesser. There is nothing more valuable to us than God's glory and his presence and to be able to participate in his kingdom this morning. Even our own desires must be subjected to the revealed word of God, subjected to the lordship of Christ himself, subjected to the scripture who, or sorry the spirit who speaks through these scriptures this morning who trains us how to think and how to feel rightly in a way that enjoys God's presence. Christian, when it comes to the nature of the flesh, scripture implores you this morning, do not be carefree with your choices. Do not be carefree with them. I think a lot of time, we like to confuse freedom with being carefree. But we know As followers of Jesus Christ, true freedom is found in following and obeying the commands of Christ. True joy is found in being disciples of Christ, learners of Christ, those who follow him and in turn go and make more disciples. God's gifts, they matter to you. They matter in your life. He gives good gifts to you. But may these gifts be a way of enjoying the one who gives them and not indulging the flesh itself. See, the nasty thing about this flesh that we have, that all of us have, that we all are called to wrestle with until the Lord returns, is the more that we feed it, the more its hunger grows. But it's the gospel that not only saves us this morning, but satisfies us in the morning. Keep turning to the gospel that satisfies. Church, we are not missing out on anything that this world has offered because we have the one who made this world and all of its gifts. They could not see there are people that cannot see their stubborn nature here in this passage. Their stubborn nature. Verse 9, the Lord calls these people a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people. It's God himself who gives us a helpful analogy here of what it looks like to be stubborn. In your family, there's probably a stubborn one among you. If you don't know who it is, then it's probably you, right? In my family, I I say this because I was the stubborn one growing up. But God gives this analogy of a stiff-necked people because every farmer would have uh, uh, would have understood the frustration of a stiff-necked animal trying to plow a field these people are like that of an ox who's been been bridled who's called to to plow a field and yet this ox will only go straight he will not turn right he will not turn left when the farmer wants him to he is stiff-necked he moves one direction and one direction only as you might imagine this is not a beast of burden that is helpful in any way to the farmer and this is the very description he gives god gives of these israelites in this time a stiff-necked people he says of pharaoh earlier on he's a hard-hearted man set in his ways ways that are set against god almighty himself Israel is a people who rebelled against God, ignored the very goads of God himself, and as he tries to prod them along, they can only go one direction. May we not be a stiff-necked people, a, a people who refuse to listen to the Lord, but are quick to be redirected, quick to follow the Lord's path. Aaron, again, is... A prime example of what it looks like to be one stubborn in nature. In verse 21, when he's called out by Moses here, what does Aaron do? Not only does Aaron misrepresent the past, right? He just outright lies about what has happened. Moses, It's not me that did this, right? Like I took what they had, I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Aaron himself is a stiff necked man why because Aaron refuses refuses to repent when he's called out on his sin he just doesn't make lame excuses but he lies about what happens and he continues in that way I think is the picture here of this scripture you will not be perfect You will not be perfect until the Lord of glory comes and gives you new flesh. Yet, even while you will make mistakes, how will you respond when confronted with those mistakes? Will you give excuses? Will you give lies? Or will we be a people of the Spirit himself molded and transformed into the likeness of Christ? You see, the real shame with, Aaron's response here is it seems to be out of character with who he's called to be as a leader of Israel. The more we indulge in sin, the more out of character we truly become. When people look at you, do they see Jesus Christ? The very glory of God himself, beholden in the face of Christ, now fills his church. May we not be out of step and out of character with that which the Lord has called us to as his prized possession, a people called to be a a nation of priests on his behalf. Church, you are priests who represent the Lord in this world. May we be found in step with the character of Christ. And finally, they could not see their great sin. And this is the true saddening part of this passage. They could not see their great sin. Where does it all lead? Where does the false worship lead to? Where does the stubbornness lead to, the the self-indulgence? leads to a blindness, to the greatness of sin. The great misunderstanding in this passage is in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. They have sinned a great sin, and yet they could not see sin for what it is, an evilness against the Lord. Well, there's a lot going on here, church. What we take note of in Exodus 32 is that the Lord takes sin seriously. He takes sin seriously. And when Jesus Christ returns, the whole world will know how serious the Lord takes sin. But yet through his word and by his grace, may we understand the seriousness of sin. That sin is in fact great against the Lord, an act of rebellion against him We cannot afford to misunderstand the seriousness of this sin. And you, a church, here in Kansas City, Missouri, is called to be a buttress of truth, a light for God's glory, that the world around you may know the seriousness of that sin and know the greatness of a Savior from that sin. You cannot shift the blame. All sin will be accounted for. But sin can be forgiven, the scripture says, in Jesus Christ. Christ is the only one who is capable to save. Church, may that be your confession now and always. May that be your confession in this community, that as we look at a world around us and we can see the the evilness of of sin itself, that, that this may be a fuel for us to declare the glory of God that much more. Continue to testify of Jesus Christ's grace and his goodness towards sinners. All of us were that sheep, as we said earlier, the one that was straying. All of us are the ones who have been pursued by the Lord, by his grace, for his glory, that we may go out and find others. While our sin is great, the great testimony of the gospel is that Christ is greater for now and always May we praise him for that, for eternity. These people were blind in many ways in this passage, but you, church, you are not blind any longer. You've been given the spirit of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you continue to be heralds of that and all that you do. It's been a privilege to be here, to worship with you all. Your hearts are, are evident in that worship. I thank God for that. But remember... There will come come a day where the tendency is to stray, to go back. But Christ is greater than all those things. Christ is greater than all that sin. Christ is greater than our own desires. Christ is greater than the things of this world itself. Pursue Christ in all that you do. And I have no doubt the Lord will continue to use this church in a way that magnifies his name and builds his kingdom here in Kansas City, Missouri. May we be a people who see by faith and pursue the Lord in faith in all that we do. Praise God for his mercy on sinners. As you can see here in this passage, we are in need of a great mercy, and he has that mercy available to us. We're going to wrap up this worship service with a couple more songs that I just want to encourage you this morning, as we, as we wrap up, that we, as we reflect on the word of the Lord himself and the grace of Jesus Christ, that we would respond with true heart, heartfelt worship now through these songs. That if you need prayer, I'm sure there's plenty of people in this congregation that would be happy to pray with you this morning. I'd be happy to pray with you but if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I hope you can see that while there is a great evil in our sin, that Christ can save you this morning. The scripture is clear when it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved by the grace of God and not by any sort of works this morning. If that's where your heart is at, convicted of a great sin, Confess to the Lord this morning, and he will save you. Let's respond now to his word. Respond in worship. Respond in repentance. All glory to Christ this morning.